Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthol. Remember FANG? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. These were the unstoppable big tech monopolists of 2017 or so. These companies became so big that they could exert gatekeeper control over markets and throttle upstart competitors. That was and remains the story. It's a story that's taken a few hard dings lately. In February, Facebook, now Meta, saw its stock price dive 25% in a day. Their flagship social media platform lost daily active users, and the company said its revenue would be hit by changes to the privacy settings on Apple's iPhone operating system. Meanwhile, competitors like TikTok and Snap have been thriving. Since October, Netflix's stock has dropped more than 70%. The service lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of 2022. It expects to continue to bleed customers, more than 2 million of them, through the rest of the year. It faces stiff competition in the so-called streaming wars from Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Apple TV, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, and others. In brief, the Schumpeterian gale of creative destruction appears to be alive and blowing. And that's a good thing because we want innovation and creative destruction helps us get it. Or is that just another story too? I'm very pleased to have a great evangelist for progress and innovation here to talk this through with me. Adam Thier is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. His most recent book is Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments. He writes often at Discourse, among many other outlets. Also, be sure to check out his blog, The Technology Liberation Front. Adam, I cannot believe it's taken me this long to have you on. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Corbin. Um, so I definitely want to get into the broader topics of progress and innovation with you, but let's start uh, very specifically with the goings on at Meta and Netflix. When you see companies like this trip, um, does it make you glad? I mean, it kind of, it, after all, it proves that these empires are ephemeral, ephemeral, that they rise and fall. Sometimes they rise again. I think of like Microsoft, but you know, what, what's your take? Yeah, well, I, I don't feel giddy about it, but I feel in some ways vindicated when I see large companies stumble to some extent, because it is a sign, as you mentioned at the outset, of the continuing prevalence of Schubertian gales of creative destruction and the way that they usher in change in the most unexpected ways throughout history. Um, I, I think the proper position towards how one should feel about bigness in general about companies is, is neither the sort of biggest bad mentality, nor is it the biggest beautiful mentality we see others hold. I think it should be more of an agnostic position somewhere in between that says, well, we're always going to have some big companies in our economy, and that's good. But we're always going to have some nimble startups that are nipping at their toes and coming out of nowhere to hopefully displace them and become the next giants. This is the essence of Schumpeter's insights. It's not just the creative destruction bit. It's what he got to in the chapter after he talked about 
creative destruction, when he talked about monopolistic practices. And he said what we always forget when we're thinking about static equilibrium and these sort of static models of how economies work is that it's the quest for the prize, the prize of profitability, the, the, the prize of market dominance that keeps these smaller you know, new entrants trying to nip at the heels of the big dogs and become them. It's that race that we want to encourage. And that process that Schumpeter so brilliantly described 100 years ago is what I think describes our modern economy and does it quite nicely. Is there a way for us to tell uh, whether we're maximizing innovation with a certain market structure? I mean, some people make, you know, they, they like to point at big companies and um, maybe like the example of Bell Labs and the amount that yeah. was spent on innovation. Uh, we look at... I don't know, Facebook dropping something like $10 billion on the metaverse. And they say, well, actually, we, we need these big companies. Even it's been suggested, sometimes pointing at Schumpeter, that monopolists, as long as they are ephemeral, are good because they spend excess profit on R&D or whatever. So maybe there's that. Or, no, that's terrible. They clog up the economy. It's really the upstarts, uh, the Steve Jobs in his garage creating the next big thing. Um, and those are both stories. They're both plausible. Uh, are you aware of whether we can actually ferret out statistically or reach firm conclusions about which is superior? Well, I, I don't believe that we usually have the foresight to do these things. It's really hard. We don't know precisely because technological change is so hard to gauge and to, to determine what the optimal amount at any given time is. Again, that's static snapshot thinking. And let's think back throughout history. I think history always should be the lens we look through to to think about the, the, the debates we're having today about market size, market structure, and antitrust. You know, Corbin, I'm an, I'm an old timer. I was born before humans set foot on the moon. And so in the year of my birth, 1969, the government brought one month before I was born in January of 1969, a antitrust case against IBM. And on the merits, it's hard to deny that they didn't have a point. IBM was a juggernaut like no other. It was a tech titan of its time that seemed just completely impossible to dethrone. And so began what ended up being a 13-year antitrust investigation of IBM and its dominance of mainframe computing uh, and adjoining markets. And Robert Bork famously called this, this DOJ case against IBM the antitrust division's, quote, antitrust Vietnam, because it was a quagmire that just seemingly never ended. Well, whatever one thinks about the merits of that case, What's most interesting about it is after 13 years, the government, I think they had called somewhere in the neighborhood of like a thousand different experts to testify, literally hundreds of thousands, I think 300,000 pages of materials have been filed. Um, and at the end of the day, they still didn't have enough to build the case. And in 1982, they dropped it. And they dropped it incidentally on the same day they moved forward on the AT&T antitrust case. Now, what's interesting about those two cases that happened in the early part of my own lifetime and that influenced my thinking later about other cases is that here it seemed in both cases, the government had some merit to their arguments. And yet in the first case, they couldn't get the case to move and get finalized. So the wheels of justice, literally in this case, the Department of Justice moved so slowly that it didn't really do anything. It really didn't help consumers a bit. What did help consumers when it came to IBM? It was the fact that IBM never saw the personal computing revolution or the internet revolution coming. It was completely disruptive forms of technological change that upended the computing industry at every single layer. And by 1987, IBM had started losing so much market value. I think they lost um, 
something like two thirds of their market value in like a five year period. It was just astonishing. Everybody thought they were done. They had to completely reinvent themselves and they did. And they're still with us today as a far different company. But what about AT&T? That was a legitimate case in my opinion because the government was so close and embedded with AT&T, but it too missed the boat if you think about it. In fact, the Department of Justice after the modification of final judgment went into effect for AT&T's consent decree asked Peter Huber, the great telecom attorney, to do an investigation into like that case and like, did it make any sense? And he came out with a report that says, our government has completely missed the boat here. They have no idea what's going on in telecom markets of importance. And he issued a report through the Department of Justice, no less, in 1987 called the Geodesic Network. And he said, what really is important is the facilities-based competition we'll get through mobile telephony. And this was at a time when nobody was talking about the mobile threat. But he was exactly right. It was a very different type of competitive threat that would ultimately undermine the AT&T dominance, right? It wasn't anything that the regulation was meant to cover. And so I think that has a bearing on today's debates. What do we want to do about Google? What do we want to do about Facebook, Amazon, whatever? Well, I, I know when we had those same arguments about IBM and AT&T, what we wanted to do ended up not meaning anything of all that much importance. We wasted a lot of time, a lot of taxpayer resources, and ultimately didn't serve consumers very well. So we need to have some humility when we think about the kind of disruptive change that ultimately will disrupt markets and benefit consumers. I think my favorite when we go through these cases, I mean, IBM is one I like to talk about, but uh, my, my personal favorite is uh, Blockbuster Video trying to purchase Hollywood Video in 2005. And they, right. dropped the, they dropped the deal because the FTC basically made it very clear that it would get challenged on antitrust grounds. And this is two years before Netflix starts its streaming service. By 2010, Hollywood Video is bankrupt. Uh, Blockbuster, I, I think it was soon after that. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about um, yeah. arguing Crazy. over the shape of the sandcastle as a tidal wave is coming up behind you. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I mean, let's, let's be clear. I mean, this consumed an enormous amount of bandwidth in Washington when this merger was happening. And it was happening, incidentally, on the heels of another horizontal merger, Sirius and XM satellite radio services, right? So in both those cases, you could say, well, okay, at least the government was going after horizontal mergers, which many people often think are you know, more competition destroying or should be restricted in some way. But in both cases, it was abundantly clear that anybody that put any thought into it realized these companies were going to face a tsunami of technological change from very different sectors, some of which we probably couldn't even predict. And that was absolutely true, right? I mean, it took, I think the, the FCC spent something like 500 days reviewing the Sirius XM deal before finally approving it with endless conditions and caveats, many of which restricted their ability to, to raise prices for many years and almost bankrupted them. But because we allowed that deal to go forward, Sirius and XM are still with us today. They still are a player in the multi-channel, you know, uh, multi-audio marketplace, whatever we want to define this market as, which of course is where the government usually gets it wrong, defining markets, Sirius and XM is still a player. But Blockbuster and Hollywood Video are not. And at the time we did have Netflix, but they were still sending us shiny discs, DVDs in the mail, but it was a competitor, but we all knew we still had cable and satellite television. And then we knew that there was a whole new wave of multi-channel video options coming through video game platforms and the internet. It was just a matter of bandwidth catching up to 
consumer demand. And that is exactly what happened. But because FTC regulators basically threatened Blockbuster and Hollywood Video with action if they move forward, they decided to stop the merger. The two companies, as we know now, no longer exist. And what could have been a potential competitor that could have tried to, try to find a way to get itself well-heeled for the new video marketplace, instead it went bye-bye. And now, of course, this could be happening to Netflix too, even though we thought it was a video monopolist and now it's lost, what, 60% of its uh, share this year or something crazy? Well, it's, it's interesting. At the height of the use of the FANG acronym, I remember talking to my wife and we were discussing the different companies and, and what do they have by way of a potential moat or protection. And we both agreed Netflix has by far the least, we, we said at the time, it, it clearly is competing in the streaming wars. And we thought the stock price kind of didn't make any sense. And I've always seen a connection between the people who... Um, want to make predictions about market structure, which is what antitrust regulators are fundamentally claiming to do, and stock pickers. I mean, I'm a big believer in the efficient um, markets, at least in the sense of you personally are not going to beat the market, um, the Burton Malkiel view of things. And if I really thought that I knew what the proper market would be, I wouldn't bother with antitrust. I'd go and invest money and get really rich. Like if I really right. thought I could see the future like that, that's what I would do. And we see that um, people tend to not be so good at that. And even the ones who seem good, it's really just that they flipped a coin and they got lucky, you know, they got heads 10 times straight. Um, yep. So, you know, I didn't know that Netflix, and I suspected it was overpriced, but I didn't put money into it because I know not to, to make those kinds of predictions. But yeah, now we're seeing they had all this streaming competition. It's hitting them hard. And what's really amazing to me now is despite all of that streaming competition, I mean, as far as we can tell, we still had two FTC commissioners who wanted to challenge the Amazon MGM deal just now, Amazon's purchase of MGM's catalog. Um, I named all those competitors at the outset. I mean, how do you see that many competitors in a market? How do you see that much money flowing into a market? And you still want to break up these companies. It's almost like they want it to be the Chicago corn market in terms of its competitiveness. Right. I, I just don't understand it. Well, I think you're nailing it. I think, I think from a lot of regulators' perspective or uh, antitrust advocates, they want highly atomistic markets, right? That just aren't realistic markets. I mean, the, the media business is extraordinarily difficult business to navigate. You've got so many different issues from the copyrights you've got to clear to the distribution channels you got to secure to the actors and actresses and entertainers and you know, informers that you need to pay. This is, a, this is a challenging business. And we're always going to have and always have had very large players in the media landscape. But here's the thing. Their names always change. There's always churn, Jupiterian churn happening. And it's amazing. I, I wrote a paper a couple of years back for an uh, organization that Baron Soka and I used to work for, the Progress and Freedom Foundation. He wrote a paper with his help called uh, A Brief History of Media Merger Hysteria. And I basically just pointed out that you can go back in time and look at every single media merger acquisition or deal, and you can find people decrying it just in chicken little terms. It's the, you know, the, end, at the end of the world as we know it. Um, nothing, nothing topped in this past century uh, Nothing topped the hysteria we saw about a deal like AOL Time Warner. Um, people and regulators and critics labeling it sort of the, a new totalitarian force, a ministry of truth that would destroy diversity on the dial, blah, blah, blah. And it was a mega deal. 
you are you are combining content and conduit in a major way with the biggest internet company at the time and one of the biggest cable companies at the time and a huge media catalog. Yeah, on paper, that kind of looks scary. What happened to that deal? That deal within 18 months started hemorrhaging cash after it was finally approved by regulators. It lost $100 billion within two years of consummating that marriage. It was called by, uh, by stock uh, pickers and others who had previously favored it and said, hey, this could be great things. Called it the quote unquote turkey of the decade because it was, it was a disaster from shareholders and the company's perspective. So much so that by 2007, Time Warner had decided to shed the AOL name from its company entirely and basically abandon almost all of its assets piecemeal one by one to whomever would take it at the lowest bargain basement price. Once again, regulators and markets, you know, they thought one thing and then technological reality and competition turned to turn the page in, in a major way on a new chapter for the media marketplace. Well, one thing that kind of blows my mind is the AT&T Time Warner deal that did not turn out as those companies had hoped. Um, and, you know, they, they had a real struggle to get it through, get it approved. Uh, I remember Judge Leon in the District of Columbia District Court just tore the uh, Justice Department's case to shreds their attempt to block the merger. And then it didn't turn out so well. And then people say, or try to point to it as evidence that we need stronger antitrust scrutiny. And I don't, I just don't understand how that it's just out through the looking glass logic to me. I mean, you look at the the competitors themselves cannot figure out what the future looks like and what is in their own best interest because the market is that fluid. How is that a case that regulators should be blocking more of these? I just is beyond me. Um, And I've seen that multiple places. Yeah, we heard the same story when Rupert Murdoch and many others were were acquiring DirecTV. I mean, DirecTV has switched hands multiple times with multiple media moguls taking it from from Murdoch to, to, to John Malone at Liberty, uh, of course, to AT&T, and all of them eventually shedding it. I mean, Murdoch made it his like most desired media property for so many years and then had it for all of about a year or two and immediately flipped it. And famously on the front page of the New York Times was quoted as calling DirecTV a quote unquote turd bird. <laughs> he thought it was such a disastrous investment for News Corp. But it wasn't nearly as disastrous as when Rupert Murdoch acquired MySpace. And spent whatever I, I can't even remember what five hundred eighty million. I actually looked it up yeah. in, in prep for our episode. Five hundred eighty million dollars. Yeah, people thought like, "Wow, that's a big deal." You know that today by today's terms, that's kind of silly. Um, but I remember Jeff Chester, who uh, who Baron and I used to always argue with about these deals. Jeff Chester labeled the uh, the deal uh, when Murdoch got the Directv that it was going to be quote unquote the digital Death Star. That was great. I love that. Uh, you know, it was going to destroy all of civilization. He, with, uh, Murdoch with, at the time said Facebook is like the phone book and that MySpace right. will be so much more than a social media network. Yeah. Right, 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 right. But with MySpace, we know how that, had, how that worked out for Murdoch, right? I mean, he ended up flipping that thing for, I think it was like 35 mil or something. It was nothing. And, you know, there was a time, of course, in 2007 when headlines were being written famously in The Guardian and other places saying, what are we going to do about the MySpace monopoly? And what we were going to do about the MySpace monopoly is allow people to switch to Facebook and other social media competitors. But even Rupert Murdoch, the primary media mogul of our time, of our age, he couldn't figure that out. All of his smart people, all of his investment advisors, they said MySpace was a great deal. 
And, and the regulators come back later or the antitrust advocates and see, see, we told you so. No, 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 no. You don't get to play that game. You said we should have disallowed the deal. And what we were saying is we should allow it and then see how markets work themselves out. And ultimately, and as is often the case, they end up crucifying people who make bad bets, including big moguls like Murdoch. Yeah, I wrote a piece in uh, Truth on the Market blog a few years back where I joked that um, you could save a lot of money by uh, in, you know, just having the double pendulum department at the Department of Justice. We'll just have a double pendulum and every now and then we'll draw a ping pong ball out of a, you know, we'll put corporations' names on the ping pong balls. We'll draw one. It'll be on the chopping block. We'll have a monkey throw the double pendulum. Odd number of swings, company survives. Even number of swings, we'll break it up. And at least we'll save all of the money on the litigation and the investigations. <laughs> um, right. Well, we've talked about uh, Facebook and Netflix. I mean, Facebook actually one last thing on that. I mean, even Axios just this morning, um, their headline article was Facebook's endless pivot, you know, talking about <laughs> their struggles to try and find the next big thing. And um you know, the amount of money they've dropped on the metaverse. And it's funny because the metaverse will either be a big turkey, it'll be Google Glass times 10, and we'll all sort of forget about it. Uh, Libra comes to mind of that, you know, nobody talks about that now and says these companies are totally fallible, or it will succeed by a mix of hard work and good fortune. And we'll, you know, continue to say Facebook is this unstoppable juggernaut. I mean, to go back... Right. They were actually in trouble until they figured out mobile devices. There was nothing inevitable about that. Um, but I, I digress. So that, but that does leave Amazon, Apple, and Google. Do you care to talk maybe about, you know, if you were at those companies, what risks do you see? What might lay them low? Or is it really just something where you maintain faith that, um, you know, ambushes come out unseen, which obviously is what happens sometimes, but. Yeah, well, let's think about Apple and Android and let's start with the fact that they become major players in obviously the smartphone world. When, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, they wouldn't even, they, these companies' names wouldn't even be on our lips, right? We wouldn't talking about Motorola, Nokia, Palm, Blackberry, these kind of companies that were thought to be unassailable giants in the field of mobile handsets and mobile software. And of course, who was the leading mobile software OS provider at the time? It was Microsoft, who we had just got done dealing with from an antitrust case involving browsers and the OS. But now we were worried about them rolling that into the world of mobile. And in 2007, when Apple got there first before Google at, uh, in the launch of Android, people were ridiculing Steve Jobs and Apple for saying, this is a huge mistake. What are you doing? You're gonna, you're gonna, there's no way you can compete against the juggernauts like Motorola, Nokia, Palm, and BlackBerry. We used to call BlackBerry the Crackberry, right? Because people were th thought to be so addictive to the BlackBerry. Well, this all changed very in very short period of time. I mean, the, the iPhone famously launched, Google got their act together and then launched Android as a competitor. And the whole world of mobing, mo mobile communications and computing changed within a matter of just a couple of years. So that's an amazing story, again, of creative destruction. And two companies that, you know, weren't in that market came and got in it and, and changed it for the better. Well, it doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. That story is still evolving. We don't know what will happen next. Clearly, Microsoft is still there, has made some attempts to try to continue to be a player there, but it's not gone well for them. Again, a company that 20 years ago we thought was the biggest monopoly in the land. Now we don't even include it in the FANG acronym. 
<laughs> that to me is the most astonishing thing in my life. There are some great so memes about how they've just sort of ducked and laid low and been lucky yeah. not to get, you know, plenty. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't think all is necessarily uh, smooth sailing for Apple and, and Google going forward. I think they do face forms of disruption. And let's and let's face it, they've had some failures. One of my favorite Wikipedia pages is a, a page called Discontinued Google Services. And it's a river of failure. It's just all these products that Google has launched and then ultimately said, yeah, no, that didn't work out so well. And they folded them up, including ones that weren't even failing that badly. I mean, they put together, I mean, how many different social networking and blogging services has Google launched and killed? They had so many of them. I mean, Google, well, Google was going to make the social network that was going to destroy Facebook. That was the right, story at one right, point. Right, right, right. And then they folded it all up and went home, right? This was after they had killed Blogger and they had killed uh, a variety of other different services. I mean, uh, what was it? Google Buzz, Google Friend Connect, Google Plus, Google Currents, Google Suite, Blogger, Hang. I mean, I can't even keep track of them all. I, I'm surprised I remember that many. Uh, but the reality is, is that they all failed. And then think about like, you know, people say, oh, Twitter, Twitter, you know, what are they going to do kind of thing? I mean, seriously? I mean, do you remember when Twitter acquired Vine? And people thought like, oh, my God, they've got the, the micro video market. Vine folded up pretty quickly, right? I mean, and now it's TikTok. So there's always somebody else or something else that comes around that surprises people. I mean, we're having this conversation via Zoom. How is it that Skype didn't quash this market like people predicted it would when Microsoft acquired it? Where's Skype now? I haven't used Skype in years, right? It's all Zoom. Is Zoom a monopoly? <laughs> Please. You know, I of mean, course, in Amazon's case, it was Walmart around right. 2005. I I am right. oh, I was not born before the moon landing, but I am old enough to remember <laughs> when Walmart was the unstoppable juggernaut that everybody uh, really really hated. Yeah, and and it's still I mean, if we talk about if your question to me is like what to think about these other tech titans, you know, which of them has the most formidable power? I usually come back to Amazon. I mean, it it, it is it has really acquired an unprecedented amount of of market scope and, you know, the the stroke of genius that was AWS, which at the time people thought was crazy. People thought, don't do that. Why would you want to do that? And now it's you know a huge part of their business. They've become a retailing giant, obviously, and diversified into so many fields, owning now grocery stores, drone divisions, all sorts of other stuff. I think of all of these companies we're talking about, they're the one that has the, the best footing and will be the hardest to dislodge just because they're active in so many different spaces, including spaces that aren't completely digital. There's an important difference between sort of quote unquote digital dominance versus sort of physical real world dominance. Um, and so a lot of these digital tech Titan debates you hear, I'm like, come on, man. I mean, it's just a, it's one kid in a good coded app away from being disrupted, but that's not the case for Amazon. They've got, they're, they're well situated. Uh, I could also imagine a breakup scenario where they're basically told like, you're going to be more of a strict retailer and all this other stuff like AWS and these other gambits, they're going to have to be spun off. So I think the company with the most to lose and the most threatening antitrust scenario is Amazon going forward. It doesn't mean I support it. I'm just saying if I had to forecast what was going to happen, they're the one that to, to watch. I could see that. I mean, I look at Google search and I think um, they really have, uh, to, to use the moat term, they've got a, a really solid moat around search and Apple's doing strong with the devices. But both of those, I think of the Schumpeterian principle that it's, it's not that somebody's going to come in and make your product more efficiently. It's that the market will change in some way that hits you 
on the side of the head. So I can't really picture what it is with search, but it's something where we don't get our information in that way. It's just something fundamentally different comes along. And then in Apple's case, I mean, obviously things are trending toward uh, the device not being in your hand, it being your glasses or... I mean, my goodness, it being, you know, a chip uh, in your brain. I know that horrifies some people, but um, I think both of them face more of a risk from just a fundamental uh, paradigm shift. So I can see I can yeah. see what you're saying about Amazon. We're, I think we're going to continue to need things physically delivered to our homes for quite a long time to come. Um, your latest book is on evasive entrepreneurs. Um, and that seems like a particularly timely topic, given how much Elon Musk has been in the news lately uh, and his various scrapes with regulators. Um, could you tell us about your book? And I know so, it goes into a lot more, even, you know, like um, more everyday hero entrepreneurs. So I'd love to hear a bit about that. But then also, you know, does Elon fit your model? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking about it. So uh, Evasive Entrepreneurs basically refers to entrepreneurs that use various types of new technologies or what I sometimes call technologies of freedom to push back against old archaic laws and regulations that either sort of defy common sense or just uh, no longer really work well or that they find morally repugnant for whatever reason. And so evasive entrepreneurs are all around us. And sometimes it's quite accidental. Sometimes it's quite intentional, almost a form of what I call technological civil disobedience, the way they use technology to try to sort of do an end run around policy. And of course, the, the paradigmatic case study here would be the sharing economy and Uber, Airbnb, and so on, who you know, confronted a, a century's worth of regulatory morass that flatly said, we will not allow competition in these spaces. And they said, well, we're going to offer it. We're going to do it. And they did it. It changed the entire political dynamic overnight. And today we enjoy alternatives to traditional like taxi services or hoteling services that we would not have enjoyed if not for the fact that Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and other sharing economy competitors came in and offered that sort of an alternative play, sort of a permissionless innovation play, and really stuck it to uh, the regulators. So we turn to Elon Musk. And of course, he's got his own case study of based entrepreneurialism happening in a couple of different sectors right now, the most notable of which would be autonomous vehicles. You know, every single time that Elon Musk goes on Twitter and tweets something out about saying, hey, we've got a new, uh, you know, hands-off feature, we've got a new uh, autopilot feature, whatever it is in terms of full self-driving mode, he's, he's used a lot of different names. And it'll be going active in uh, overnight once you uh, start your car in the morning. And of course, Tesla vehicles are basically computers on wheels and there's rolling code. And every night, you know, your car basically downloads a new, uh, a new build, if you will. Here's the problem. Everything that he's doing is technically in violation of federal motor vehicle safety standards. He hasn't gone to any regulator and asked for permission slips to do this. He's just done it. Tesla engineers are rolling the code out and changing the functional abilities of an automobile without going through a formal regulatory process. What should the law say about that? And what I've suggested in my book on evasive entrepreneurialism is that there's a case to be made that it's, it's extraordinarily beneficial that we allow technology to evolve in that dynamic of a fashion and challenge long held assumptions and shake markets and regulations up a bit. And my book goes through countless case studies of how this is happening. Um, Musk is only one of many. He's one of the most notable of them because he's really often in the face of regulators about a lot of law. But in that particular one, I find it most interesting because it is really revolutionizing, revolutionizing the market for uh, automotive services. 
there's surely a cost benefit analysis to that kind of innovation. And you could certainly make the case that the benefits outweigh the costs. But do, do you get into, I mean, surely, um, if anything goes, there's the potential, I don't know, that the uh, genetically modified seed uh, invades a native species or that the satellite traffic jams leads to satellite debris that causes problems for um, space observation. So absolutely. Um, how do you yep. how do you encourage? Because I agree. I sympathize with you about uh, kind of around the edges, but there must be some limit. And how do we find that of, of how much we let people sort of do whatever they want? Absolutely. So this book on evasive entrepreneurialism that I wrote grew out of my earlier book on permissionless innovation and the fundamental challenge that was set forth by legal scholars, philosophers and others to my earlier book. I tried to answer more seriously in the second book, which was really a moral challenge. It was really like, you know, what are the limits of law or what are your, what's your framework for how we should abide by law? And, you know, when do you violate those norms, legal or ethical or otherwise? And, and I grapple with that. And I talk about what is the proper role of the so-called precautionary principle in the field of technological risk regulation? When should we have laws that come down with a hammer and say, thou shall not? that you first must seek permission to offer new innovation or whatever else. And that if you skirt these rules in any way, we're coming down hard on you. But I point out that the problem is, is that the law in the United States and in many other countries is unfortunately so out of line with common sense and modern technological realities that all too often we don't get around to doing the commonsensical kind of things we should as part of a normal due course of legislative or regulatory work to freshen things up, to give law a good fresh spring cleaning to make sure it's in line with new realities. And so technology becomes, in essence, I argue, a new form of checks and balances that pushes back against and puts pressure on an old, broken, dysfunctional legal or regulatory system. If things go wrong, and they do, and they do, we need to have proper legal remedies. They need not always be preemptive or precautionary in character. They can be the common law. They can be torts. They can be re good re recall mechanisms. With the Tesla, for example, we have in place a process whereby if things go wrong in an automobile, there's a there's going to be an immediate recall and that can be taken off a of market requiring repairs. I'm fine with that because it's a remedy that comes ex post. It comes after we've allowed innovation and trial and error to happen, see what the result is, and then address the problems as they develop. It's only for the most sensitive class of technological risk where the risks are immediate, irreversible, catastrophic, and physical in nature, tangible in nature, that we need to have a precautionary approach. So for example, nuclear technologies, chemical technologies, killer robots, things like this. We need pre preemptive precaution. In most other cases, we should take a more flexible, adaptive, trial and error-based approach and allow ex post remedies, especially court-based remedies, to be our preferred solution to the concerns associated with new technologies. I think on the show before, I've mentioned the, the gray goo scenario where uh, somebody accidentally makes a nanobot that uh, goes out of control and eats all of the carbon on the planet. Uh, well, right. I'd like to uh, move big picture in terms of innovation. Um, when we talk about sort of progressive antitrust, progressive regulation, um, I find our friends on the progressive side of the ideological spectrum, sometimes um, they talk out of two sides of their mouth or they, or they want two different things or, or they, they have an internal disagreement. I, I don't know which of those ways is the best to put it. Sometimes you're told, 
no, 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 you know, we break up these companies or we do more regulation and that actually increases economic growth. We're, we're actually, we want what you want. We're just better at it. Um, and then sometimes the case is more of a, like the amazing one to me is when people try to do that with degrowth. They're like, we're pro degrowth and we'll end up with a better living standard. Like that blows my mind. Um, but then to me, the slightly more honest one is that, well, no, we're just against change. We want a more stable form of life. We, we, we want more regulation or breakups or whatever to slow things down. Um, and that at least I think is intellectually consistent. And what's really interesting to me is that um, that particular mode of argument has really seemed to pick up steam on the intellectual right in the last few years as well. There's been a real uh, resurgence of the, um, and I don't mean this pejoratively, sort of the Wendell Berry view of conservatism of this like, um, you know, we should be more, I don't know, in touch with nature, or you should be more able to have a stable manufacturing job that doesn't go away. And, and it's worth having less economic growth if we can um, have a more stable, less disrupted life. Um, and I've seen a real uptick of, of, you know, people leaving that sort of slightly false, uh, we're the real pro-growth people argument and a lot more emphasis uh, uh, from left environmentalists to our new uh, sort of right nationalist types to the, you know, a, a, a much bigger emphasis on this. No, no, our whole thing is to slow things down and slow innovation. We are actually anti-innovation. Um, do you agree that, like, have you seen that shift? And do you have thoughts on it? And why is it happening if you agree that it's happening? And, you know, what do we do about it? Yeah, great question. So I spent a lot of time in my last two books, both Marishless Innovation and A Base of Entrepreneurs, talking about this exact issue and talking about the sort of like underlying cultural changes that we've seen, especially in, as you noted, the conservative world, uh, in terms of a greater resistance about technological change. Now, let's be clear. clear. Uh, opponents of technological change have always been with us, right? And they, they've gone by many different uh, names and we've talked about Luddites in the past, but there's many different types of people for whatever reason. They just prefer the status quo. Status quo bias is a serious thing. People just prefer a settled, nicely situated status quo sometimes because they fear change for whatever reason. Sometimes it's rational. They fear about losing their jobs or, you know, de-skilling of their profession or in other cases, they fear disruptions of privacy or safety or security. Sometimes it's fears about the children. What about the children? Um, I, I go through all of these different categories of reasons for opposition to technological change in my books. And I point out and in each and every case, that preference for the status quo is what's driving it. But what's shocking to me recently is exactly the fact that so much of it is now coming from the right of center as opposed to the left. And that it, it reflects a really interesting shift that was identified by Virginia Postrel in her wonderful 1998 book, The Future and Its Enemies, where she says the real cultural dividing lines over technological change going forward are not left versus right or Republican versus Democrat. It's dynamism versus stasis. It's people that believe in a dynamic world of you know, abundant, unpredictable change and all that accompanies it versus those who will just say, no, 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 no. We don't want to rock the boat. We want to go slow. We want to be careful. We need to preserve certain types of institutions or norms. And sometimes, again, they'll have a point. But most of the time, what it means in practice is a precautionary principle-based policy regime. Because if you take those cultural attitudes and then allow them to infuse law and regulation, 
it means that we move from giving innovators a green light to giving innovators a red light. It basically says, stop, you can't go any further until we approve of what you're doing. And you very, very quickly get to a regressive, stagnant society that doesn't produce new forms of technological innovation and economic growth. And so this is the fundamental fight of our times. And it doesn't make a difference if the person proposing preserving the status quo is left, right, or anywhere in between. We need to ask them, will you come and accept a new different vision for change in the future and allow for trial and error experimentation to run its course? And I think it's uh, pretty clear this is, uh, these things are not going well for us right now. The opponents of change are multiplying and uh, it's a serious issue to confront. We need a new vision, a new framework. I think Matt Ridley has the best name for what we need. We need rational optimism. We don't wanna be ridiculously over exuberant about technology. We don't wanna be Pollyannas. There are challenges. There are serious problems sometimes with disruption, technological disruption. But on balance, Technological change leads to economic growth. It's the fundamental driver thereof. And it's the fundamental driver of improvements in human well-being and betterment. And therefore, we need to make the case again and again and again for the benefits of technological change and innovation, but do it in a rational, evidence-based way, in a cool demeanor, you know, uh, demeanor, not some sort of craze like, isn't it great? We've got shiny new toys and everything's going to be sunshine and roses. No. There will be challenges, but we can find better solutions to those problems and still have a more prosperous, uh, progress-friendly future. Rousing. Well, um, Adam, this has been fantastic. What are you working on these days that we can uh, look forward to? Well, I think the biggest fight policy-wise that's coming, it's already here, both here and on the other side of the Atlantic, is really the future of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I think in the field of technology policy, this is the most important debate of our time. It, it exacerbates everything that we just discussed in terms of like concerns about disruption and people who prefer the status quo. And so I'm trying to find a way to frame a, a, a pro-progress, pro-innovation approach to AI policy and governance that admits there will be challenges, privacy, safety, security, economic disruption. But we can find better approaches to dealing with those problems than derailing the AI revolution, which has enormous potential to benefit humanity, improve our lives, life-enriching, life-saving technologies galore. But we have to give AI innovators more of a green light and allow innovation and investment to happen. So I'm working on uh, a big report as part of my work on a new Chamber of Commerce AI Commission, where I'm one of 11 commissioners. And we've had multiple meetings around the nation and another one coming in London. I'm also working on a whole variety of other products related to autonomous systems, derivatives of AI, whether it's driverless cars, drones, other things like that. It's a huge, huge market for policy. I encourage other people who are interested in tech policy to get involved in this area because this is, uh, this is a fight that's here, it's now, and uh, we need help. If you care about progress, uh, this is a, a burgeoning field of study. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with Doll E2, uh, yes. the um, program that you just type in a description of a picture and the yep. uh, AI creates that picture stunningly well. So I'm going to ask Sam Altman to make uh, Adam Fear inspires crowd to believe in progress and innovation. <laughs> and we'll see what it creates. Oh, boy. That could um, be interesting. Thank you so much, Adam. This has been great fun. Uh, thank you, Corbin. I appreciate it. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. 
This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Please go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. And while you go do that, I will get started on uh, prepping the next episode. Thank you all. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.